Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 7. We're still in Mark 7, um, final week in Mark 7. Uh, Mark 7, 31 through 37 this morning. This is a passage uh, that involves what I think, at least from my personal opinion, uh, one of the most moving miracles, uh, one of the most moving healings in the gospel of Mark. And so as you're turning there to, to Mark chapter 7, I want you to just think of a concept. It's one that we've come across a couple times already in the gospel of Mark, um, and, and it's going to be here this morning as well, and that is the concept of amazement. Amazement. Our passage this morning, in one sense, is all about being amazed. And lots of things inspire us to amazement, don't they? We can be inspired by creation. This is why millions of people each year go visit national parks, uh, travel hours or days to be amazed by canyons, mountains, the ocean, massive forests. We can be amazed by the generosity of others when they do something that's completely unexpected for us. We can be amazed at how fast a calendar year goes by or how fast kids grow. We can be amazed by a particularly good movie or a good book or a good concert. Lots of things can leave us amazed. And it's not only the good things that leave us amazed either. Uh, Sometimes it's the bad things. And so if you're a fan of sports, maybe you have experienced a different type of amazement that comes from this place of disappointment. Have you ever found yourself, if if you enjoy sports, saying, how on earth did we blow that lead? It's a form of amazement, but that's rooted in disappointment. Or, why on earth did we trade that player? Why didn't we go for two there at the end of the game? If we spend a little time thinking about it, a number of things under the sun leave us amazed. I think a lot of times when we are amazed, we can actually feel this need to share that amazement with others. So let me give you an example from yesterday. Yesterday, um, I, I, was, I was eating breakfast, and there was this new documentary that came out uh, this past week called Jesus in Athens. Um, we're actually going to hopefully show it here sometime at the church next month. Um, it, it's just about how God is, is at work in the, in the city of Athens among the refugee community and, and bringing many, many people from across the globe to, to faith in him. And I was watching this uh, over breakfast, and Crystal was doing something else in, in the other room, and I actually had to stop watching it uh, because every single time I got to a certain part or a certain story was done, I'd have to pause, and then I'd rewind it, go hunt Crystal down, give her the phone, and say, okay, now you need to watch this so we can talk about it. We can, we can both be amazed together. A lot of times when we experience this, this amazement, we want to share it with other people. And so if you talk to someone who has just gotten back from Yellowstone or from the Grand Canyon, um, they'll probably pull out their phone and show you a picture or two. Or first-time parents, first-time grandparents, if, uh, if you ask them how things are going with their, with their child, be careful because you will be uh, under uh, just an absolute onslaught of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures because of this sense of amazement. We have a tendency to share things with others when we are amazed, and, and so it's, it's not all that surprising what takes place uh, with the crowds here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, when they're unable to be silenced about this incredible thing that they have just seen Jesus do. I mentioned that Mark 7, 31 through 37, is this healing in the Gospel of Mark, but it is very, very different than other healings. It would be wrong for us to just conclude that this is the exact same thing, and so we can just skim it, or or we can just skip over it. Mark 7, 31 through 37, this story uh, is only found in the gospel of Mark. He's the only gospel writer to include 
this story. And so he gives it a place of prominence, very close to the end of the first half of his gospel. And I just want to remind ourselves of the purpose of Mark's gospel for us, what we've seen so far in this first half of the gospel of Mark. Gospel, uh, or Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8, all of it is concerned with primarily one question. And that question is simply this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then right from the very beginning, before we even have a chance to, to understand, that's his question that he wants us to wrestle with, he actually gives us the answer. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark writes his gospel with a purpose. His gospel is a history, it's historical, yes, but he's also trying to convince us of something, that Jesus is not just an ordinary man, he is the God who took on flesh. And what was a radical and, and even ridiculous notion thousands of years ago, uh, today is, is no less radical. It is no less ridiculous for us in the culture that we live in. In the climate of, of today, we, we may accept that there is this historical Jesus that lived thousands of years ago, but he almost certainly wasn't God if there is a God. And Mark lived in a culture that is very similar. They may not have, have denied the existence of God or the gods, but, but they, they certainly denied that Jesus was one of them. The, the notion that Jesus was God himself would have been impossible. It would have been ridiculous. It would have been offensive. And so in every story in the first half of Mark's gospel, he is telling us, he is, he is using that story to, to give us this overwhelming mountain of evidence. He's just throwing story after story after story on top of each other to confront us with the question, who is Jesus? And the answer is Jesus is God. This morning's text, no different. Mark makes it very clear that Jesus is God, and in this story, he claims that because Jesus claims it for himself in this story. So let's explore this passage. Let's explore how Jesus describes himself, how Jesus refers to himself, how Jesus acts out the fact that he is God in this passage. This passage breaks into three distinct sections. First, there's the background, then there's the healing, and then there's the response to the healing. So let's go ahead and use those three milestones as our roadmap for this morning. If you have a Bible, please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 31. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. First, let's look at the background found in verses 31 and 32. I'm going to read those verses again for us this morning. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand upon him. 
Now, our text picks up right after last week's story. Uh, Last week, Mark 7, uh, verses 24 through 30, Jesus leaves Galilee, where he's been doing all of his ministry, and he goes to the northwest. He goes to this Gentile territory of, of Tyre and Sidon, and the reason he is going there is because he wants to rest. He wants to spend some, some time with his disciples and, and pour into them and to invest in them, and yet he can't remain hidden. While he's in this region, he, he is almost immediately approached by this Gentile woman who we saw last week is the paragon of faith. If you want to know what faith looks like in the Gospel of Mark, look at the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. Right after that, Mark tells us that Jesus heads away. He leaves the region. But Mark doesn't tell us how long Jesus is gone. He does tell us, however, how long, he, or the, the, excuse me, the, the itinerary or the, the route that he takes going home. And if you're familiar with uh, ancient Near Eastern geography, this is a little odd. Uh, verse 31 tells us that, uh, that Jesus goes from Tyre, and then he goes north to Sidon, and then he goes south to the Sea of Galilee, and then from there he goes to the Decapolis, which is even further south and east. So you have a map up here. If you can, if you can tell the different colors, uh, Jesus starts by the Sea of Galilee, which is right there in about the middle of, of, the, uh, of, of the graphic. He goes to the north and to the west to Tyre, which is on the coast, and then he goes north from there up to Sidon, and then Jesus decides he's going to go back south and he goes all the way to the Decapolis. And you can't really tell from the colors there, but the Decapolis is the orange region there at the bottom of the map. So it's a little bit confusing. It's a little circuitous that Jesus takes this route. And, and we have to ask ourselves, well, was Mark mistaken? Or, or maybe was, was Jesus lost? Did he take a wrong turn when he's, he's leaving Tyre because he's not familiar with the area? And we're going to touch on the significance of Jesus' path, his, his route here in a, in a moment. But I just want you to notice, can you bring that map up uh, again? Galilee is the yellow region, and once Jesus gets to Tyre on the coast, he almost completely avoids going back to Galilee. And this makes sense in the context of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is trying to avoid the Galilean crowds. Jesus is trying to avoid the religious leaders of Galilee who are increasingly hostile toward him. Jesus is even probably trying to avoid Herod, this man who rules over the region of Galilee. And so Jesus travels the long way in order to get to the Decapolis. This is another predominantly Gentile territory. Uh, it has a substantial Jewish population there as well. And, and the, this region of the Decapolis, uh, when he gets there, he's met by another large crowd. And this is the second time that Jesus has been to the Decapolis in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5 tells us of the first time Jesus goes to the Decapolis. It's when he heals the man who is possessed by the number of demons that call themselves Legion. This man who begs Jesus to travel with him. And how does Jesus respond to that man in Mark chapter 5? Well, it says this, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So Jesus has been gone for for a couple months from the the region of the Decapolis, and and he comes back now, and and first he's met by this hostile crowd. They don't want Jesus. They actually say, Jesus, please leave in Mark chapter 5. Now he comes back, and there's this crowd that swarms around him. And at least partially, The reason for this crowd gathering is the fruit of this man's testimony. 
That Jesus said, hey, don't travel with me. I want you to go tell others about how much God has done for you. And this man who is possessed by, by an army of evil, he takes that seriously. He can't help himself. And he goes all throughout the region of the Decapolis telling people about Jesus, about Jesus, about Jesus. And all these people, they begin to hear about him. And they, they now have this opportunity to come and see him for themselves. And Mark highlights one person in, in particular from this crowd, a man who, according to verse 32, is deaf and has a speech impediment. This dual description here is really significant. It actually tips Mark's hand to what uh, is the significance of this passage. This Greek word that the ESV translates as speech impediment here is this rare word. In fact, it's so rare, it's only used in the New Testament once right here. It's only used in the Old Testament once as well. And that is in the, God, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35. Now, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen a couple times that, that Mark loves Isaiah. He loves referring to it. He loves to, to use it as evidence that, that Jesus is fulfilling everything that Isaiah talks about, how one day God is going to come. And one day God is going to save all of his people in the exact same way that he saved them in the Exodus, so also he's going to save them now. He's going to free them from slavery, but not just to the Egyptians. Now he's going to free them from slavery to sin. In Isaiah 35, he quotes it in the exact same way. I want to just read two verses for you this morning. Isaiah 35, talking about when God's kingdom will finally come. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The word mute there, also speech impediment. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So, so Isaiah is looking forward to the future and he's saying, hey, you know what, there's going to be a day. Someday God is going to come back and he's going to heal everyone. If you have an affliction, God is going to heal that someday. There's this pastor in the Twin Cities, his name is Jason Meyer. And he says, our text, if you notice how it begins, it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. So the text says, then. Well, this is incredibly good news, and so we're left wondering, well, when is then? Well, he tells us just a few verses earlier in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So when is it? that the ears of the deaf will be unstopped? When is it that the tongue of the mute uh, will, will be healed? It, it, the one who has this speech impediment will, will be able to sing for joy? Well, verse 4 of Isaiah 35 tells us it's when God comes. When God comes on the scene, that's when all of this is going to happen. And God is coming, according to Isaiah. And when he comes, he's going to fix everything that's wrong in his creation, everything that's broken in his creation. But it still doesn't tell us when. He doesn't give us a specific in those verses. So back up to the very beginning of Isaiah 35. I think he does give us a specific here. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So how, how, uh, how does Isaiah start his chapter? He's telling us that, that when God comes, when God shows up, all of the nations are going to see his glory. Places like Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, these, these places that don't know God, that are far from God, they are going to see God's glory when he returns. Now here's the significant thing. Where has Jesus been ministering at this point? Has he been ministering in Israel or has he been among the nations? He's been in the region of Tyre and Sidon in this Gentile area among the nations. There's a theologian, his name is James Edwards. He makes this connection very specific. He says, in the Old Testament, this region called Lebanon is now today known as Tyre and Sidon. So Isaiah knew this region as Lebanon. He says, one day Lebanon is going to see the glory of the Lord. And then we get to Mark. And we see that Jesus is traveling through the area of Lebanon in his day, Tyre and Sidon. And the nations, these people are beginning to see his glory. So why is it that Jesus takes a circuitous route to the region of the Decapolis, it's, it's to fulfill prophecy. It's to show people who he is, to declare, to declare that his kingdom is coming. This is incredible that even Jesus' travel plans declare that he is God and that he is coming to save us. And so here at the beginning of this story, we, we haven't even gotten to the healing itself yet. We, we can predict what's going to happen. Mark makes it very clear. He's, he's thinking about Isaiah 35. He wants us to read this story in, uh, in the context of Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 tells us what Jesus is about to do. It says this in verse 6, the first half. Then the lame, shall leap, lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So we go into this already knowing that Jesus is going to heal this man. That his power is going to heal this man in a way that only God can heal. He's going to do something unprecedented because Jesus is someone unprecedented. He is not just a traveling healer. He is, to use the language of Isaiah 35 verse 4, he is the God who comes to save us. And this leads us to our first truth in, in this passage this morning, and that's simply this. Jesus is going to bring the new creation. Jesus is going to bring the new creation. The Bible begins by, by telling us that God creates everything. God makes everything very good, but all we, as we all know and have experienced, it doesn't stay that way. With sin comes the brokenness of this world, and, and we, we each experience that each and every day of our lives. People get sick. People die. People are born with legs or, or eyes or ears or mouths that don't work properly or they don't work at all. People get diagnosed with various sorts of diseases and autoimmune diseases and all sorts of things. People are born with, with mental disabilities. All around us, we see the proof of the fall, the destruction that, that sin has brought upon God's creation. And from the moment sin breaks God's creation, God says, I've got a plan to fix it. I've got a plan to fix it. And that's what Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 35 says, hey, you know what? God's got a plan. 
God is going to come someday. He's going to fix it. He's going to, he's going to restore your body to its fullness. He's going to, to give me, Jordan, uh, full sight for the very first time in my entire life. He's going to heal your body of, of autoimmune diseases. And it's coming because he is coming. And when he comes... He's going to do something even better than just make everything very good. He's going to remake everything very good. Mark takes that and goes a step further. He doesn't just say God is coming. He says, you know what? God is here. God has come. And we're going to soon see it's not just that he's going to make everything very good. He's going to remake it very good. And this is an incredible promise of hope for those who suffer. The Apostle Paul suffered from some sort of a, a physical affliction, and we, we don't really know the details of that, but Paul reminds us of where our hope is, how we should look at our suffering in the light of the hope of God's future promise. It says this, 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why is it that we do not lose heart? Why is it that, that we remain confident in what God is going to do for us is because even though your outer self is wasting away, even though your outer self is decaying, even though your outer self is dying, we don't lose heart because the affliction that comes is so light and momentary compared to the incredible, beautiful weight of glory that awaits us in the new creation. If you find yourself and you're suffering, and you're, you're longing for resurrection. This passage in Mark says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Isaiah tells us that God is coming. He's bringing this new creation with him. Mark tells us God has come, and because he has come, we can be confident that his new creation is coming as well. That's the background of this passage. Let's go to our second section, the healing in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. I think of all the, the healings recorded in the Gospels, this one is the one that impacts me the most. It's one of the clearest displays in the entire Gospels of Jesus' mercy and compassion. And it's for this man who, in the, in the world's eyes, is of very little value. He doesn't contribute much. He, he can't contribute much. And Jesus is so compassionate and, and merciful to him when, when the world would look at him in a different way. All too often, the world operates in this mindset and this pattern that, that if you have physical disabilities, then you are a nuisance. Then you are a bother. We have in this messed up notion that, that killing someone is an act of, of mercy. But Jesus says otherwise. Here Jesus shows us what, what true mercy looks like. Consider just for a second this mercy 
and this compassion of Jesus in this passage, uh, three ways I want to just draw attention to. First thing Jesus does is he takes this man and he brings him to a private place. He brings him away from the crowd. We know that Jesus is going to heal him. Isaiah 35, that context already very clear. But Jesus loves this man too much to make a spectacle of healing him in front of the crowds. He cares too much about this man. He knows this man's name. And this man, in spite of all of the afflictions that he faces, Jesus knows he was created in the image of God. That he was created in Jesus' image. And he knows that these crowds want to see healing from Jesus, but Jesus won't grant it to them. Because he refuses to use this man as a prop. This man's life, this man's soul is of infinitely more value than just being a tool to spread Jesus' popularity. And so he takes him away and he goes into to private where Jesus can look at his creation, his, his very good creation, where Jesus can look at his image bearer and look at him and away from the crowd Even though this man is afflicted by the brokenness of the world, Jesus can just look at him and restore him. And this becomes even more powerful when you consider what Jesus does here in light of other passages in the Gospel of Mark. When you contrast Jesus' actions here, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, there, this woman uh, who wants to remain anonymous, she wants to be healed in private. She doesn't want anyone to know who she is. And so she sneaks through the crowds in order to just touch Jesus' cloak and then run away from him. She thinks in her heart that all she needs is physical healing, and that's it. But Jesus knows she needs something more than just physical healing. She needs to be able to face her fears. She needs to realize that she needs a savior, not just for her body, but for her soul as well. And so he calls her out and says, come back to me and talk to me. And he brings her healing from a place of privacy to a place of in front of the entire crowd. But here... The crowd desires Jesus to heal this man in front of everyone, and yet he knows this man also needs more than healing. As much as this man may need healing, he needs something greater. He needs to know his worth. He needs to know his infinite value in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of God, and so he takes him away from the crowd so he can give him his full attention. That's the mercy of Jesus on display here. Second way that we see this uh, display of Jesus' compassion is in this way that that Jesus heals him. And and if you've read this before or or you just heard it for the first time this morning, it can sound odd how Jesus heals him. After all, we've seen elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus can heal people with just a word or with just a touch. Jesus doesn't even have to speak and he can heal people in the Gospel of Mark. He can heal people from a distance. So why is it that Jesus takes his hands and he, he sticks them in the guy's ears. And why is it that he, he spits and why is it that he, he touches this man's tongue? Uh, Mark has already made clear that this isn't some sort of magical rit- ritual. Jesus doesn't need magic. So what's going on here? Well, I think the answer is uh, this is before sign language was invented and Jesus is signing to this man. He's using sign language in a way that this man can understand what he is about to do. 
This reveals Jesus' compassion. He's communicating to this man in a way that this man could not have, uh, or the only way that this man could have understood how Jesus is about to heal him. It wouldn't have worked for Jesus to, to look at him and just raise his voice and, and tell him very loudly what is coming. The man is deaf. No matter how hard you yell, how loud you get, it's not going to work. And so Jesus uses signs, he uses actions in order to communicate with him what is about to happen to him. And again, just consider how, how compassionate this is. Jesus could have just healed him, and that would have been mercy en- enough, but not for Jesus. Jesus wants, to know, wants this man to know that he is of great value in God's eyes. And so I just imagine that, that Jesus here, he, he takes this man's face in his hands tenderly, and as he's looking at him face to face, he, he, he just looks at him and he, he slowly puts his fingers into his ear as a sign of, I'm about to heal your ears. And then he spits, and, and it doesn't say he spits on the man or spits on his hand, it just says he spits, and that's, that's a, miming what he's about to do and loosening the man's tongue. And then he reinforces that by touching the man's tongue as well. He wants this man to know what's about to happen through the power of God. And that's why Jesus looks up to the heavens. He looks up to his heavenly father saying, hey, you know what? God is the one who's in charge. I'm doing this in part of God's will. Everything that I do is in obedience to God himself. And then what does the text tell us? What do you do next? It tells us that he sighs. And that sigh is the third sign of compassion in this passage. Why is it that Jesus sighs here? Why is it that Jesus sighs? I think it's because his heart hurts at what has become of his creation. Remember, Jesus is God himself. Mark is making that very clear, that he is the creator. He creates men and women to live forever, to live unencumbered by the the brokenness of sin, to live unencumbered from sickness and and pain and hurt. He created them to rule over his creation alongside of him. And he knows what he intended for his creation. And he looks at this man and he knows this is not it. This is not it. The word sigh here is the same word that's used in Romans 8 to to refer to the groaning of creation. It's this deep-seated longing for things the way that they were meant to be. And here Jesus sighs. He, He groans because he knows what this man was supposed to be in his original plan for creation before sin came and broke the the creation itself. He understands this this man's weaknesses. Probably better than this man does as well. More than anyone could ever fathom. And he groans. That's just his incredible gift, isn't it? To have this God who sighs. To have this this God who groans in the face of our afflictions, in the the face of our pains. Not because he's, he's unable to do anything about them, but because he fully resonates with us. He fully loves us and cares for us. He shows this compassion and this mercy here. Not only is this the God who comes to save us, but he's also the God who's going to meet us in our weaknesses. He's going to meet us in our hurts and our afflictions in his display of his perfect love for us. And that's exactly what Jesus does here, isn't it? He says, be opened, and he uses Aramaic, which is the common language of the day. He doesn't use magic words. He doesn't need them. 
It just says, be opened. And it happens. Just like that. This man is healed, completely and fully healed. Completely and fully healed. If you've ever had the opportunity to look at videos on YouTube of, of those who cannot hear or cannot hear well, um, being able, because of technology, to hear for the first time. They're just overcome with joy, overcome with emotion. Take a look on YouTube. It is, it's absolutely incredible. That's exactly what's happening here. It's this moment of pure joy. And this man, for the first time in his life, he, he can speak, he can, he can hear. Isaiah 35 tells us that the, the tongue of, this mute, of the mute will, will sing for joy. And after studying this story, of course that's what happens, right? Of course that's what takes place in this moment. This man has been healed. Jesus has met him in his weakness, in his affliction, and he's healed him. The man can hear and the man can speak. And that's the second truth from this text this morning as well. Jesus deeply cares about you. Jesus deeply cares about you and your Weakness. Jesus' love, compassion for you, the exact same as his, as his love and compassion for this man. In a way that no one else fully knows, Jesus knows exactly what you are going through. Jesus knows exactly the pain that you experience. And he sighs, he groans at that pain, at that hurt, at that loss that you experience. Jesus has come to save you, but he doesn't do it from a distance. He doesn't do it impersonally. He does it by entering into your weakness and meeting you there. And if you think that, that no one cares today, this, this text tells us otherwise in a way that you can't even fathom, that you can't even begin to grasp, Jesus knows and Jesus came to heal you. Our second text is, is, or second passage, part of this passage is all about the compassion of Jesus in this healing. The third piece, the, the story closes with this response from the crowd, starting in verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And as you hear that, can't say I'm, I'm all that surprised, are you? Can't, I'm not all that surprised at the, the response of the crowd. And I'm not justifying their disobedience to what, what Jesus said and Jesus commanded them to. I'm just recognizing the power of what just took place. Jesus charges them, he commands them over and over and over to not spread the word about this miracle, to not tell people about it. He doesn't want people connecting the dots on their own, not yet, between what Jesus is able to do, what Jesus is doing in Isaiah 35 in this new creation. He doesn't want make, people to make that connection just yet, and so he tells them, don't tell anyone yet, but they keep doing it. And they keep doing it, keep doing it. It just bubbles out of them. And we're going to come back to that command for a silence here in a moment. But notice what verse 37 says. Verse 37 tells us that they were astonished beyond measure. The amount of wonder and amazement that they are experiencing, it just can't be quantified. They, they can't uh, control it. They can't, they can't put it into words, how, how they're feeling here. And, and then notice what else they say in, in verse 37. They say, he has done all things well, that everything Jesus touches is successful. He is the best teacher that they've ever heard. He is the only person that they've seen be able to get rid of pure, uh, impurity. He's the only one who can heal anyone and everyone. No sickness, no stain, not even death itself can, 
come against Jesus. And when Jesus heals, there is no relapse. When Jesus heals, there are no complications. There's no recovery period. Jesus heals, and it's instant, and it's full, and it's complete. And this crowd is like, is there anything too hard for him? Is there anything that Jesus can't do? He does all things well. The crowds can't real, or don't realize how right they are. This phrase, he has done all things well, actually mirrors um, the uh, the, the language of God's declaration in Genesis chapter 1, when he looks over all of his creation, he's just finished it, he looks over all of his creation, and he says, it's very good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This crowd doesn't realize it, but Mark draws attention to it. He wants us to see clearly, understand just who Jesus is. He's not just a healer, he is God himself. This is the way God operates. He's done this before. In other words, this is precedence for Jesus doing all things well. Of course he's doing all things well because he's God himself. When God himself looked over his creation after he had completed it, he declared it was very good. And then he was the only one to, to witness all of it. And so he was the only one who could declare it is very good. Now we see the crowds bear witness to that and they say, you know what, we agree. He is very good. It is very good. He does all things well. Jesus has created everything very good in the beginning, and in the end, Jesus will recreate everything very good. And that's our third truth this morning. Jesus is the creator who made all things good and will remake all things good. We touched on this earlier. It bears repeating. Do you suffer? Perhaps you are in a place where you are intimately aware of the brokenness of your body, the brokenness of creation. You can be confident, you can rest confidently and assured that Jesus is one day going to come. He's going to remake you, and when he gets done, he will look at you and he will declare that his work is very good, just like the crowds do here. As we began this passage this morning, I said this healing is unlike any other in the gospel of Mark, but, but what do we do with it? Many of us probably don't need convinced from the Gospels that, that Jesus is God. So, so what do we do with this passage? Well, uh, I want to I draw attention to this one connection here that we skipped over. Uh, I think it's the key to this passage, and that is this. Why does Jesus command these people to be silent? Why is it that Jesus tells them to be silent? Remember what they are doing, verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So here the people are, they're traveling around the region, and they are proclaiming what Jesus has done. And what's the, the key word? They're proclaiming, isn't it? That's, that's the key word here. It's the exact same thing Jesus has done, the exact same word that Jesus you, that is used to describe Jesus when he comes on the scene at the beginning of Mark. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus enters into Galilee, he, he comes proclaiming, and literally that word just means preaching. He's preaching the gospel. He tells people that the kingdom of God is coming. And here in the Decapolis, there are other people that are preaching the gospel as well. They've, they've seen Jesus do these incredible things. They, they know that it points to the kingdom of God, and so they begin to say, hey, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. 
There's just one problem. They're declaring that the kingdom of God is coming without any category for the cross. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of the suffering that Jesus is about to experience. They see, but they do not perceive. They hear, but they do not understand. They don't fully grasp who Jesus is or what he has come to do. And so Jesus commands them to be silent because the cross is still coming. And Jesus doesn't want the proclamation of his kingdom to come without the cross. And he still has to go to the cross because Jesus knows that Isaiah 35 can only reach its fulfillment if he goes to the cross first. There will be no everlasting healing without the cross. Jesus could heal this man, this deaf man, and he could hear for 50, 60 years. But then death would come. Jesus could, could heal this man who could not speak, and he would be able to, to speak for decades, probably even singing God's praises for that time. But without the cross, his lips would once again close in death, and they would be closed forever. Jesus knows what no one in the crowd knows. There will be no everlasting healing. There will be no new creation without the cross. And it's that realization that helps us see what this passage is ultimately about. If we were to sum up this text in in just one sentence, it would be this. Jesus is the God who does all things well and will make all things new through the cross. Jesus is the God who does all things well and will make all all things new through the cross. Remember the context of Mark. This story absolutely declares that Jesus is God. It declares that he is the creator of all, who who does all things well, that he is God himself. He's coming to make all things new. But it also hints that he has to go to the cross in order for it to happen. This text is a reminder that we desperately need Jesus. We need someone to come and save us from the curse of sin. And if you haven't realized that in your life, I I hope that this passage reminds you of that. That you will realize that you have a God who, who, like Jesus does for this man, promises you a new creation, will bring you into it, who meets you in your weakness, meets you in your suffering, meets you in your hardship, and will make you new. He will not just bring you healing for a day or a decade or several decades, but who will bring you healing for all eternity. Jesus is the God who does all things well and will make all things new. And it comes through the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And like the crowd here, we just want to confess that you do all things well. Even when we don't grasp, fully grasp the purpose, we don't understand why we're facing hardship and affliction and suffering, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remain confident that you do all things well. But just like as you looked over your creation at the beginning and said it is very good, you have a plan to take those who are in you, who are in Christ, and remake them and say it is very, very good. 
God, we look forward to that day. And as the Apostle Paul said, we do not lose heart. Because even if the affliction that we experience today is great and hard and painful, the suffering that, that we feel today may, may cover us, God, we know that it is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in your new creation. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.